Try that again. Good morning, Four Corners. If you would, go ahead and go with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 14. Exodus 14, verses 15 to 31. It is a joy to be with God's people again, and I pray that, I pray you look forward to being with God's people on the Lord's Day, that uh, we're not just here individually to have a devotional experience. Uh, That's not what coming to church is about. Uh, It is most certainly primarily vertical, uh, but it is always vertical with the horizontal in view. And so we gather this morning with one another. This is corporate worship. We gather with God's people. And so I pray that this is something you're excited about each week as we think about worshiping together, praying together, uh, being in God's word together, singing his praises and especially these theologically rich Christmas songs, always. I've said this before, but I remember when we lived in Scotland, we were part of a wonderful church there, and they would give the testimony before the baptism, as we do, and one of the young guys got up and he talked about how one of the most marked features of his new life in Christ was he had become converted right before Christmas, and he began to hear the Christmas songs, and for the first time in his life, it's like his heart just exploded in worship. Uh, Before, they were just sort of nostalgic uh, songs, you know, reminding him of childhood or whatever, Uh, but all of a sudden, it was as though his heart was just clinging to the Lord, delighting in the Lord uh, as a result of these songs. So let me just ask you this morning, are are these songs for you um, sentimental and nostalgic, or I should say merely sentimental and nostalgic. Uh, sentiment and nostalgia are, are perfectly fine. It's a part of how we're made. Uh, but is it merely that for you? Or as you hear these songs, as you sing these songs, is your heart exploding with praise to God as we think about the richness, of the greatest wonder of the universe that God became man? An incredible thing. The the union of the divine nature and the human nature in the one person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the greatest thing in the universe to celebrate. Today we are in Exodus 14 and we come to what is probably the most famous story in the Bible. Uh, Apart from the crucifixion, resurrection of Christ, what is probably the most famous story in the Bible and that is the parting of the Red Sea as it has been traditionally translated the parting of the Red Sea. We got the lead up to this last week in the first half of Exodus chapter 14, and today we get the parting of the sea itself. And so um, last week we we had those introductory uh, verses leading up to what we're going to look at today in this great miracle. And so our title this morning is God's Glory at the Sea, part two. And uh, I tried to make it just be part two, but we're going to spill over into next week. So this is just, I mean, this really is one of the greatest passages in the entire Bible. So uh, next week we'll do part three, and I think that we'll do it, uh, but uh, we'll see. Uh, But this week we're looking at God's glory at the sea, part two, this theme of God's glory. Uh, As we talked about last week, this is the great theme of the chapter. And it may not be what you first think of when you think of the parting of the Red Sea. 
It's kind of obvious, it's implicit, but it may not be God's glory that you see as the theme of this most famous of biblical stories. But it is clear from beginning to end that this is the great theme of the chapter. We see it in the first half. Verse 4, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. I will get glory for myself, the Lord says. The, the, the only thing God could be about is his own glory, the eternal, infinite creator of all, the, the, pre, the, the, the I am who has existed, who exists and who always will exist, is about his own glory. I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. God will be glorified in the thinking, in the feeling, and in the words of the Egyptians as they know that their gods are nothing, and the God of the Hebrews, Yahweh, is the one true and living God. Unless you think that it's, that's just a passing remark, you know, of course, yeah, we got to get this comment about God's glory in there. We see it again in the second half of this chapter, verses 17 to 18. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. So let me just say this. We simply cannot say it enough. The theme of the whole Bible, the theme of the whole universe, and the theme of each and every one of our lives is singular. It is the glory of God. As 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whatever you do, fill in the blank. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so just think about it for a moment. What are the alternatives to that? What are the alternatives for doing what we do to the glory of God? How about doing what we do in order to be praised by men. We know that's a problem because of how much time Jesus spends on it. It's particularly a problem for religious people given how much time Jesus devotes to it in Matthew 6. Living for the praise of people towards us or, or God's glory. What about for our own comfort? Our own sense of well-being? Our own ease? What about our own dreams and goals? Our life plans? There are so many distractions to the glory of God. Or we could say so many substitutes in our own lives, in our own thinking, in our own hearts for the glory of God. But here we see in this most famous of biblical stories that at the center of it all is the glory of the Lord. Is that what you live for? Is that what we're living for this Christmas? Is the renown, the fame, the magnification of God in Christ. That's what the world is about. That's what our lives are about. And that's what we leave here on a Sunday morning going out to do. Is to bring glory to the Lord. 
Last week, we spent our time looking at verses 1 to 14 with two things in view. And so these were the two points we looked at last week, a setup for salvation and a call to confidence. God moves his people to a position of vulnerability in order to save them. And we talked about how God does not, it's interesting, God does not lead them north to battle with the Philistines. He, he protects them from uh, that situation. He's, he's obviously involved intimately in their weaknesses. He, he does not, he, he shows consideration to his people. He does not bring them into a situation in which they will fall away, in which they will go back to Egypt. And yet at the same time, he leads them into a position of vulnerability. He leads them into a position where they must entirely depend on the Lord for salvation. They appear to Pharaoh to be wandering around and trapped in the wilderness. God hardens Pharaoh's heart so that he pursues the Israelites with a substantial force involving over 600 chariots. And this would have been an incredible force when you consider all that, that is there. These are the elite chariots of the Egyptian army chasing after the Israelites who do not have any such weaponry, who cannot move anywhere near as quickly as these chariots. And here they are, the substantial force pursuing the Israelites. The Israelites are left with the Egyptian army on one side and the sea on the other. They are trapped. This is a setup for salvation. When the people see the Egyptians coming, they panic. Their threefold response, which we talked about last week, is cowering, crumbling, and complaining. They say to Moses, why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? They, they sarcastically, mockingly say to Moses, are there not enough graves in Egypt that you would bring us out here in the middle of nowhere to die by the sword at the hands of of the Egyptians. We should have just stayed slaves, Moses. Why did you do this? Why did you not just leave us alone in Egypt? And I think it's noteworthy for us how Moses responds, or I should say, how Moses does not respond to these personal attacks, to this sarcastic uh, slice at him. Moses does not respond with anger. Or self-defense. And I think here is just an important note for us when it comes to leading God's people. Uh, What does it look like for those of us who serve as elders or those who serve as deacons or gospel community group leaders or leaders of any part of the ministry of the church? As we're relating to God's people, what do we see here from Moses? We can respond when people cut us down, when people say rude things or biting things, or when we receive personal attacks. We can respond in a way that's angry or defensive, or we can respond as Moses does. He encourages the people to replace their cowering, crumbling, and complaining with confidence in the Lord. Moses gives no attention to himself. He gives no attention to trying to defend himself or make sure the people understand, hey, I was just doing what God told me to do. We we get none of that. Instead, what we see is a leader who points the people back to the Lord. A leader who engenders faith in the hearts of his people. 
So we ended last week with this message from Moses to the people. He says this, the greatest set of words, I think, uh, in the mouth of a person in the Bible, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of Yahweh. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. In other words, just watch. Just behold God. Just watch him display his glory. Just watch him save you. Watch him rescue you. Watch him be faithful. You've just grumbled. And and by the way, Moses will later say, you're not grumbling against me. You're grumbling against Yahweh. They've just grumbled against God. They've just proven themselves faithless or unfaithful. And God is about to show his grace. He's about to show his gracious grace. Merciful, faithful salvation. Simply watch and see. Today is the first Sunday of Advent, as we've already heard. So I want to draw you to a little Christ treasure that you may have never noticed in this most famous of stories of God's salvation. This is maybe something you've never noticed before, but... Here in this passage, we find the name of Jesus embedded in the text. Now, I'm not talking here about some sort of weird Bible code kind of thing, you know. I mean, we've all seen those, those videos. You can find all kinds of craziness online about how people approach the Bible, how people come to Scripture and use it for all sorts of weirdness. Uh, but here we do find the name of Jesus embedded in the text, quite literally. In verse 13, Moses tells the people to see the salvation, or in Hebrew, to see the Yeshua of the Lord. To see the Yeshua of the Lord. Of course, this takes us to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, where the angel tells Joseph concerning Mary, she will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, or Yeshua. You shall shall call his name Yeshua. And here's the reason the angel gives. Because he will save. Do Do you hear that? Because he will save his people from their sins. This salvation that we're reading about this morning, and last week, and next week. This salvation... At the parting of the sea, this Yeshua points us to the Yeshua of God. The Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, whose birth we celebrate not just at Christmas, but every day. Jesus Christ is the salvation of the Lord. It is his very name. He is the Lord's salvation. He is Savior. And the angel was clear. This is what you must name him. Because that is who he is. And so it should be no surprise to us that in in this great story of salvation. that, That we find the ripple effects of throughout the Bible. This great story of Old Testament salvation. Pointing forward to what Christ accomplished. We would find embedded in the text this wonderful glorious name. 
Yeshua. If you would please stand with me as we read God's word together. We're going to read chapter 14, verses 15 to 31. This is the word of God. Exodus 14, verses 15 to 31. Yahweh said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Now let me just pause there for a moment. The name Yahweh essentially means he is Remember what the Lord says through the angel of the Lord to Moses at the burning bush. He says, I am who I am. And then he says, you shall uh, tell the people that that I am Yahweh or he is. God says, I am. His people say, he is. Then the angel of God, verse 19, then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand And on their left, the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, Yahweh, in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel. For Yahweh fights for them against the Egyptians. As though they had not gotten that clearly up to this point. Verse 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea. The waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day. By the way, another form of that same Hebrew word that the noun form is Yeshua. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that Yahweh used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant 
Moses. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray to this God. Isn't it amazing that we're praying to this God this morning? Uh, This is the God whom we're praying to. This very God. And we pray to him as our very Father. Our Heavenly Father. Who knows us intimately. Who cares for us. And who sent his own Son to die on a cross to save us from our sins. Let's pray to him. Our Father... We bow before you, holy God. We come boldly to you, heavenly Father. We give you praise. We thank you that you invite us to come into your presence, to find help, to ask you, Lord, for illumination from your spirit. We praise you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit, for the work, Lord, that he does in illuminating your word. In glorifying Christ, there is so much talk of the Holy Spirit in our day. So much erroneous talk of what it means to be filled with the Spirit or uh, to demonstrate the Spirit or uh, whatever language is used, Lord, oftentimes for uh, just loud and vibrant behavior. That's the Spirit. No, Father, we see The Spirit makes your word clear to us. And he takes your word and smashes it against our cold hearts, our dry hearts. He he pours the water of your word on our dry hearts. He magnifies the glory of your Son, just as Jesus said he would. He encourages us and comforts us and strengthens us and makes us more like Jesus. So, Father, we do not ask that you would give us ecstatic experiences. We ask that you would make us like Christ. We ask that we would be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, your Yeshua. We praise you for your salvation. We praise you for what we get to explicitly and loudly declare over the next month, that that you have sent your Son into the world to save sinners. That he is your salvation. And that through him all of our sins, past, present, and future can be forgiven. That the Holy Spirit will come into us and remake us and break the power of sin in our lives. And give us a seal and a pledge and a guarantee or, or be the very seal himself of the inheritance that we have waiting for us. The imperishable undefiled, unfading inheritance that we have reserved for us in glory. Father, we thank you for this Savior. We thank you for your Spirit who guides us this morning, the very Spirit of Christ who is exalted to your right hand and who poured his Spirit out on the church to magnify his name and to grow in his likeness. Father, would you use this portion of Scripture from Exodus 14, what a glorious passage. Would you use it this morning to draw us to you, to draw us towards each other, to make us not like children tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine, but to be mature as we grow up into the one who is the head, as we grow in our knowledge of the Son of God, that we would stand mature, that we would be fully equipped, 
ready for every good work. As we come before you now, as we sit under your word, we ask for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. So three things to occupy our attention this morning as we take in this famous story. And you'll see these up on the screen. These are just, as I often call them, These sermon points are really just stepping stones through the text or rungs on a ladder. They're just a way to help us work our way through the passage to understand what is here. So uh, first, the preparation for the miracle, verses 15 to 20. Second, the path through the sea, verses 21 to 23. And that's where we're going to stop today. Uh, And then next week we'll come to verses 24 to 31, the power over the enemy. So the preparation for the miracle, the path through the sea, and the power over the enemy. So let's look first at the preparation for the miracle. Go with me to verses 15 to 20. Let's read those again. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. That the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen or his charioteers. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness. And it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. You know, I've called this the preparation for the miracle Uh, seeing the Red Sea parting as the miracle. But the fact is, there's miracles all over this thing. Uh, We've been seeing miracles all along. This this whole, the the cloud itself is a great miracle. And the movement of the cloud, the fact that the people look around, they see 2 to 2.5 million people. All the plagues that God has just poured out on the Egyptians. But of course, we see the Parting of the Red Sea is the great climax, the great capstone of, of, of the Exodus events, and all that has happened. And so we have here the preparation for the miracle. Here we get instructions and a preview of what's about to happen. The Lord tells Moses to stop crying and start doing. This is interesting. Uh, we don't We don't know, we don't have any record of Moses crying out to the Lord. We know that the people were crying out to the Lord. And I argued last week that in the context, I don't think we should see this as pious prayer. I think we should see this more as just they're sort of crumbling in distress, crumbling in terror. And it is good, of course, that they they call out to Yahweh and not one of the Egyptian gods, or they don't call out at all. So I think we have to note that. But here we, we're not told anything about Moses crying out. So is, is the Lord directing this specifically to Moses? Or is Moses coming before the Lord and God is addressing him as a representative of the people? It's not clear. But the point is here that all of this crying out to Yahweh needs to stop. And what needs to begin is doing. And let me just, let me just throw that at you. I'm just, I'm just going to throw that out there. 
uh, maybe yeah, we do this, right? We, we turn a lot of the things we do into piety. Uh, well, I'm praying. I'm praying. Maybe you need to start doing, right? Maybe there's just a whole lot of praying and no doing. And just to hear these words, let these words fall on you. Stop crying out and start doing. And then the Lord tells him what to do. Tell the people to pull up camp and start moving towards the sea. This is amazing. Turn them around, because remember they're facing away. Turn them around, they're camped, they're encamped, facing away from the sea. Of course, why would they be facing the sea? And, And the Lord tells them to pull up camp, to turn around, Two to 2.5 million people and stare at the sea. It's incredible. Then he says, you are to stretch out your hand to divide the sea and I will bring the people through it on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And through this... I will be glorified among the Egyptians. That's what the Lord essentially tells Moses. Now, as I've said many times, the Egyptians are responsible for their own sin. And yet the Lord is sovereign over all that happens. He is hardening the hearts, not only of Pharaoh, but of all of them, so that they zealously will go into a split sea. Hello. They will actually do that. As though it's going to work out okay. And we know that it doesn't. But the Lord is doing this hardening of their hearts to bring glory to himself. And as I've said many times before, the Bible from beginning to end puts before us two great truths. Holds them together in tension and calls us all to believe both of them. And that is divine sovereignty and human responsibility. That God is entirely in control. He's sovereign over all. And yet human beings are responsible for their own sin. No one can say, God made me do it. God did not make Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. God did not make Judas betray Christ. God did not make Israel turn a blind eye to the gospel. All are responsible for their own sin. And yet at the same time, we recognize that God is sovereignly working out his purposes in a sinful world and in and through human sinfulness. We'll talk more about each of these elements as the story continues because here we have a summary, we have a preview. God tells Moses what's going to happen and then we read of it happening. So we're going to come to each of those. But for now... What I want to draw your attention to is what happens next. After Moses gives this, after the Lord gives this instruction to Moses. And so after the instruction comes the protection. The angel of God. The angel of God, whose presence is represented by the cloud, moves from in front of Israel to behind them. Now, this would have been a dramatic scene, I think, as well. The, the people are probably at some, you know, getting a little bit used to the cloud, although I think that would take a long time to get used to that. A cloud during the day to lead the people, and a, a, a cloud of fire at night to guide the people so that they could travel at all times. But here, this cloud that they have seen only in front of them moves from being in front of them to being 
behind them? Does it, does it go over? Does it kind of come around? We don't know. But they see it move. This is the angel or messenger of the Lord who had appeared to Moses in the burning bush. Do you remember when uh, the Lord came to Moses? We see the Lord speaking to Moses as the Lord, and yet the angel of the Lord is identified there as the one who addresses Moses at first. I think we are to understand this person, the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord, here called the angel of God, I think we are to understand this person as the second person of the Trinity. This is the eternal word and son of God, the pre-incarnate Christ. And it's been, I think, very exciting to see his presence in Genesis and Exodus. For those of you who are just visiting with us or have only started coming recently, we, we went through Genesis for a couple of years and then Romans and then now we're in Exodus. And, and so it wasn't long ago that we were walking through Genesis and we were seeing the angel of the Lord, this figure there, in the very first book of the Bible. And here, once again, we see his presence. He, he is leading the people. And now he goes from being in front of the people to being behind the people to protect them from the Egyptians. We read this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, about the Israelites. These are mysterious passages. 1 Corinthians 10, 4 Paul is writing about these people, the Israelites. And he says, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And then he says this, and the rock was Christ. The rock who followed them was Christ. He goes on to say in verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. So when we read about all the rebellion and all the grumbling and everything else of this wilderness generation of Israelites, we are meant to understand, as Paul tells us here, that they were putting Christ to the test because Christ was the one who was with them in the wilderness. It just blows your mind. It just blows our minds. And then we read this in Jude 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, listen to this, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Whoa. So who is saving the people? Jesus. Who is it that will execute his judgment on the people in their rebellion? Jesus. He was there with the people in the Old Testament, in the Exodus. It was Christ. And so let me just say to us this morning, as we begin this Advent season, think about, meditate upon, consider the role and activity of Christ in the Old Testament. For me, this is one of the most worshipful things you can possibly do. I love to see Christ in the Old Testament. And I'm not talking about just prophecies of Christ's coming. I love that. 
And I'm not just talking about God's faithful protection of the line and then how the prophecies get fit into this. Like Genesis 49, for example, with Judah and how you see what God is doing with David and, and so on and so forth. All that's wonderful. And we read a lot about that during Christmas. But what I want to draw your attention to this morning as you think about Advent coming is Christ wasn't just talked about in the Old Testament. Christ was there. The same one whom we worship, the pre-incarnate Christ. He had not taken on flesh yet, but he himself, the second person of the Trinity, and I think in this figure, the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord, not because he's an angel, had an encounter with a Jehovah's Witness the other day, and I told him, I said, look, you guys are heretics. You, you believe that Christ is not God. You believe that he's an incarnation of the archangel Michael. That's heresy. That's false. Christ is God. But just because the text calls him an angel doesn't mean he is the created being we know of as angel. But we are to regard this according to the Hebrew word that simply means messenger. The messenger of the Lord. The angel of the Lord. He was there. And he is here with us now. And here we read that he goes from before them to behind them. He creates a barrier for the people. He gives the Israelites time to move, to gather, and to go through the sea. Uh, We imagine all these little kids. Guess what? There are no kids with the Egyptians. We know how slowly kids move. And if you don't have kids, you need to watch people who do. It's very slow trying to get all your kids even out of the door, trying to get their shoes on, make sure they have their teeth brushed or anything, anything. It just takes a lot longer than you think it will take. Can you imagine all the kids represented by 2.5 million people, many of them probably kids, trying to move these kids and, and older folks who are having trouble walking, older people who... Uh, have maybe various ailments. And then you have all the animals, some of them a little faster than others. They've been encamped. They have to take up camp. They have to turn around. They have to get all the kids and all the older folks, and they have to get all the animals. The Egyptians are just an army. And not only are they an army, they're a fast-moving army of chariots, which made the Egyptians a particularly formidable opponent to any army they faced in the ancient world during this period. So what does God do? This gracious, loving, watchful God. He goes between his people as they do what they need to do. He goes between them and the Egyptians. He blocks them. He prevents them from attacking his people. So verse 20, and there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Or as the NIV translates it, throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. And there's discussion over how the Hebrew is to be translated here. But however we render it in terms of you know, what's lit up and what's not lit up and so forth, what we are to understand here is this separation, this protection. The Egyptians cannot, because of this pillar, get to God's people. This is another instance, as we've seen so many times, 
of God's watchful care, of his love for his people, reminding us that he leads us and he protects us. Do you believe that? You know, those are, those are kind of cliche statements, right? Those are slogans, you know, yeah, God watches over us and so forth. But do you really believe that? It, it plays out in how we pray. It plays out in our worry. It plays out in how we relate to one another. Do we really believe that God is protecting us? We, we don't have to be all about looking out for ourselves. The Lord watches over us. We can just get busy serving the Lord and trust Him to look after us, to care for us, to be there protecting us. He protects us from falling away. If we are truly believers, we will never fall away. He will preserve us till the end. We will persevere in Christ. Keep them. Keep them. Praise God for those words of Jesus in John 17. And he prays, you have kept them. Continue to keep them. Keep them in me. Keep them in my word. And guess what? The father hears his son's prayers. He answers his son's prayers always in the affirmative. He will keep us till the end. So we see the preparation for the miracle. And now we come to the path through the sea. Look with me in verses 21 to 23. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his charioteers. Here we have what is probably the most famous miracle of the Bible apart from the resurrection, the parting of the sea. And let me get you guys, if you can, to put up that map for us just so we can once again see where it ends. And so I've I've been drawing your attention to this map over the last several weeks just to show you the path uh, that I think the Israelites took. And by the way, um, there are a number of proposals for different paths, and you can look into that and research that. Uh, but I think that this is the most likely path that the, Israel, the Israelites took. This is, was put out by a, a geographer, uh, Glenn Fritz. And uh, we can see there that they turned back. They, they, they turned away from going forward, and they encamped by the sea. And my own understanding is that they crossed the sea at Nueva Beach, right there at the, which, which is in Hebrew, Yam Suf, uh, but which is the Gulf of Aqaba. And so that is my understanding of where they crossed the sea. Uh, I would draw your attention, if you're interested in digging into this, I won't do this in detail for the purposes of, a, of, of sermons, but if you're interested in exploring this, you know, what, where is the Red Sea that they crossed? And what was the path of the Exodus? And wh- which is the real Mount Sinai? There's a guy named Tim Mahoney, uh, who has put out a number of documentaries, which I think are very well done. He interviews a lot of people. He, he looks at opposing views and so forth. Um, and uh, these documentaries come from a ministry called Patterns of Evidence. And so he's put out a number of videos now. The one on Mount Sinai location just came out uh, in theaters. There was a, a, a showing of it. Uh, but the two videos that he, the documentaries he puts out, are the Red Sea Miracle 1 and 2. 
Uh, and so if you're interested in knowing more about this location of the Red Sea and the evidence for it and so forth, uh, I would just point you to those documentaries. Uh, I think you will find them fascinating. I think you'll find them uh, even worshipful as you think about the fact that the Lord did this in history. Right? This is not just some moral tale. This is not just some story. This happened. And I think you'll, in watching those videos, come to see uh, more and more that, that it did in fact happen and there's evidence for it. It is incredible for us to imagine two to two and a half million people marching towards a sea. But the Lord is about to display his great power as creator and savior. He is the Lord over the sea and the land. He made them and he controls them. From our perspective, this is a big deal. When we look at the parting of the Red Sea, it's a big deal. From God's perspective, this was nothing. This was absolutely nothing. From the perspective of the one who created the universe, this is nothing. From the perspective of the one who who flooded the entire world, nothing. Remember Genesis 1-9, and God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, And let the dry land appear. Uh, And guess what? It was so. So God said it and it happened. No no staff needed. No hand stretched out over the sea necessary. God simply said, let the waters covering the world be gathered into one place so that the dry land appears. And we know what happened in the flood. It is as though God said, okay, Let the waters be ungathered so that the world might be flooded. Genesis 7, 11. The fountains of the great deep burst forth or split open and the windows of the heavens were opened. This creation and recreation language language from Genesis is carried forward into our passage. And so if you're a Hebrew reading this passage, you would think back to the creation account. You would think back to the flood account. We see this with two, two, two words, dry land and splitting open. With the word dry land, you would think of God who, who gathered those waters so that the dry land would appear. And here we have God splitting the waters so that the dry land appears. And you would think of the flood where God split open. Just as he splits open here the sea. Unlike the false gods of the Egyptians, this is the creator God who controls the sea. The Egyptian gods can't even control a fly because they don't exist. They're false, they're non entities. But this is the God who made the sea. And he can gather the sea. He can split the sea. He's the God of land and sea. The Lord is contrasting himself with the gods of Egypt. And before our eyes this morning, the Lord is contrasting himself with all of our gods. So we need to see that as we read a passage like this. This is a passage, this entire section of the Bible that we've been reading for a while now in Exodus, is smashes idols. That's the business of, of this part of the Bible. It smashes, and the whole Bible for that matter, it smashes idols. Has the Lord been smashing your idols? Ask yourself, what do I put up there with God? Or what do I put in 
place of God? Or what do I put above God? Let the glory of the Lord smash your false gods. Let their impotence be seen next to his omnipotence, his great power. We are told here that the Lord used a wind, a strong east wind. We don't know how long it took the wind to part the sea. You watch the Charlton Heston version uh, or uh, maybe some other kind of documentary online. And you see how, how they uh, you know, artistically envision how the sea parted. We don't know how long it took the wind to part the sea. But we should not understand the text to be saying that it took all night. That's not what we should understand. It's wind blowing and blowing and blowing and blowing and blowing. And eventually, we get that that sea apart, right? That's not how we should understand the text. Uh, Instead, we find that the night is the period in time in which the Israelites actually cross the sea. By the time we get to the morning, we see that the Israelites have crossed the sea. They're on the other side. The Egyptians are beginning to make their way through the sea. The Israelites are safe and sound on the other shore. And the Lord brings the water down upon the Egyptians as they are in the sea. So we're not meant to understand that this wind takes all night to blow the sea apart, however long it took. And we're not told. The two most striking features of this miracle are the dry ground and the walls of water. Two little bits that just really just stand out. Verse 21, the Lord made the sea dry land. He, he turned the seabed into dry land, dry ground. God did not just remove the water by dividing the sea. He also licked up the water from the sea floor in order to make the land passable. For the Israelites, for their animals and their wagons. God did not just make a slushy, sloshy mess of of mud and sand for the Israelites to sort of stumble their way through. Get their feet caught in and their wheels caught in and their hooves caught in. That's not what happened. The Lord dried the ground so that the people could go through. Just as they had been going through from the beginning of that path we just saw there. On the map, he turned the sea into dry ground. Uh, It reminds me of Elijah on Mount Carmel, where the fire licks up the water poured all over the sacrifice. I love that story. It's incredible. It's kind of second to this one, I think, in terms of God's glory in the Old Testament. Uh, It might even be kind of right there with it. And, And there's Elijah. He makes the sacrifice. The prophets of Baal make their sacrifice, and they dance around. They call out to their false god all day long into the afternoon. Their god doesn't hear because he's not real. Elijah comes forward. He makes one simple prayer. But before he does that, he covers the altar in water. He floods the thing three times so that no one could say it was a magic trick, so that no one could say it was just a natural thing, it was just a human thing. And then he prays, and we know what happens. The Lord sends the flames, sends the fire down from heaven, and the Bible says that the flames licked up the water. No water left. No water left. We know that soaking wet things don't burn unless it's the fire of the Lord. And it all burned, and the water was 
gone. And I think we are meant to understand something similar here. This wind licked up the water, the moisture from the ground, and the people went through on dry ground. Then after reading that the waters, that the waters were divided, it says in verse 22, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The waters like a wall. Now we need to understand that this is no natural phenomenon of a marshy lake drying up from an unusually strong wind. It amazes me. And you'll see this in these videos if you choose to watch them. It, it amazes me how these scholars and, and, and others will, will come at this question and they'll try to say, okay, the exodus happened, but it happened in this very natural way. You know, this is kind of the, the water had receded. Maybe there was unusually high, uh, you know, there was less rainfalls or, or less uh, irrigation, unusually high. The land was unusually high. The water it just dried up. And the people were able to walk through and, you know, it was a little muddy or whatever, but they were able to walk through. It's amazing how this gets described. I mean, you would, just, you would just rather people say, I don't believe it happened. I don't believe it happened. Just say it. Just say it. But it did happen. And it happened in a miraculous, amazing, awesome way, such that it didn't just dry up a little bit. The water didn't just recede. The water stood as a wall on the right and on the left. This is a glorious display of God's power. It is a grand miracle, the grandest of miracles, we could say, that captures the imagination and reverberates throughout the pages of Scripture. If we just got some naturally occurring dry out on a marshy lake, how in the world is that going to be praised all throughout the Old Testament? This great and mighty act of God. God went through the sea with his people. He parted the waters of the deep. But if it wasn't deep, that doesn't make any sense. It was deep. And the waters were a wall on both sides. A truly awesome sight. This word for wall is typically used of city walls with a minimum of 20 feet. These are, this should be understood as a, a very tall wall of water. As one commentator puts it, these are not little retaining walls. These are not meant to be seen as retaining walls. These are like city walls. Such is the glory of the Lord. Psalm 78, verse 13, He divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the waters stand like a heap. And the people saw it. But what we need to keep in mind is that this miracle is not about parting the sea. Now think about that for a second. When you think about this story, I mean, I do. I'm sure most of us do. We think about that water just going, whatever it looked like. That's what I think of. We think about the parting of the sea, the, the actual moving of the sea on both sides and making this division. But what we need to understand is that the parting of the sea is about making a path. The glorious creator who controls his creation, who can part the sea, who is beyond his people, incomprehensible, infinitely transcendent. He is also the intimate and imminent Savior and Shepherd who leads his people on a path through the sea. In other words, let me say it this way. The focus of this story is not the division of the waters. 
It is the path for the people. It's the path through the sea. Here we read in verse 22, And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. That's the point of these verses. Isaiah 63 verse 13 says, He led them through the depths. Who led them? The Lord led them. Their God led them. The God of the Hebrews led them. And I think as we've seen so far, Christ himself led them through the sea. Isaiah 77, 19 to 20, your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. By the way, great waters, not a marshy lake. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. It is as though God is walking with his people, holding their hand, leading them through the sea. His footprints are not seen, but he's present with his people. God makes a path for his people through the sea. And as we think about this God who makes a way, this God who makes a path, I want you to consider John 14, 6. What Jesus says about himself. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The Lord is the Savior. God makes a path for his people. And here's what we need to hear this morning. God has made a path for us. And if you just happen to come here this morning, you're not a believer. Understand this. God has made a path for you. God has made a path for you. Through destruction. Through perishing. Through sin, death. And hell. He's made a path for you to life, to safety, to joy. And that path is only Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one gets to glory. No one gets to heaven. No one gets to know God apart from me, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Not by your good deeds, not by your religious sentiments. Not by your attempts at church attendance and prayer, but Christ. He's the path. He's the only way to heaven. Next week, we'll look at the Lord's power over Pharaoh and the Egyptians when we consider the power over the enemy. We come to that next week. But for now, I want you to look again at verse 23 as we finish up this morning. Verse 23, the Egyptians pursued and went in after them. Into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen, or charioteers. The Red Sea miracle teaches us much about God, as we've already said. Yes, he is the creator. Yes, he is the savior and shepherd. But this path through the sea also shows us that he is, listen to this, he is the judge. The path shows us that he is the judge. What we find here is that the Lord doesn't just make a path for his people. He doesn't just make a path for the Israelites, a path to joy and celebration, a path of rescue and salvation. He also makes a path of judgment. We could view the path through the sea in that way as well. He makes a path of judgment. This is the ground upon which sinners walk. The same path, consider this, the same path that led to salvation for Israel led to destruction and death for the Egyptians. Same path. 
same path. They too enter God's path, but for them, for sinners, for those who reject the Lord, the path leads only to death. And let me just say this to us this morning. We all walk through this one life, this one human life. We all walk through this one world that God has made, this one great path for us all. But let me just ask you, where does your path lead? Same path. Is it a path to life or is it a path to death? Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 7, verses 13 to 14. As we think about these two paths on the one path of this human life. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide. And the way is easy. That leads to destruction. And those who enter by it, listen, are many. Many go down this path. Jesus goes on to say, for the gate is narrow. And the way is hard that leads to life. And listen, all of us gathered in this room this morning, let these words fall on you. And those who find it are few. Those who find the path to life are few. Those who go on the way to destruction, many, 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 few, find the path to eternal life through Jesus Christ. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you praise for your word. We thank you for this time together to sit under it. Lord, would you just give us such great awe of you as we think about what you did that day in history, in space and time, when you divided the sea and turned it into dry ground, when you made a path for your people, and when you brought judgment upon the Egyptians for their sin. Father, would we glorify you this Advent season? Would we consider the beauty, magnificence, and grandeur of Christ? Lord, would our time in the, these passages from the Old Testament where we see Christ, even his very name, written in the text, would it just elevate our worship of him? Would it grow our appreciation for him? Lord, would we be true worshipers this Advent season and beyond. Thank you for the Lord's Supper, this time to remember what he did on the cross, to remember, Lord Jesus, what you gave, your very own life. You lay down your life for the sheep because you love the sheep. You love us. Thank you, Jesus. Help us to honor you in how we partake of the Lord's Supper this morning. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.